This is Get Ready for Sunday, a weekly podcast reviewing the scripture readings for the Sunday Masses in Roman Catholic Churches on February 13th, 2022. On the Church's calendar, that's the sixth Sunday in Ordinary Time in the third of our three-year lectionary cycle. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. I'm here to share some background and context information about the coming weekend's scripture. It's gathered from the work of genuine scripture scholars and thoughtful commentaries, and offered here in the hope that it will make the Mass more meaningful for you. But fair warning, all this good information is sifted through my own tiny brain. If you'd like to have your eyes on the scripture readings as I talk about them, simply go to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops website. It's usccb.org. In the top navigation bar, select Prayer and Worship, and from the menu that will drop down from there, choose Daily Readings Calendar. The Liturgy of the Word for this Mass stresses an aspect of Luke's Gospel that seems to have been planned by the fundraisers for my home diocese. Here's the thing. This coming Sunday is the day dubbed Commitment Sunday in our annual Catholic Appeal. That's the day when men and women throughout the diocese are asked to define the manner and extent of their contributions in funding the charitable and educational work of our diocese in the coming year. Why do I say that it seems especially well-planned? It'll be obvious when you hear the theme in both the Hebrew Scripture and the Gospel of Luke for this Mass. The emphasis is strong and unmistakable. Here's my short version. To protect and to provide sustenance for the poor and vulnerable of the world is a primary responsibility for all individuals or for communities aspiring to live as God's people. These scripture passages on this day really don't constitute a fundraiser's trick or pressure tactic. The coincidental commitment day offers an immediate, tangible opportunity to live out one's faith. So, let's get to the readings. All of them today can be, at least loosely, tied together under the heading of choices. With that in mind, I'll take them in the order of their appearance in the liturgy. So we'll start with this reading from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the one who trusts in human beings, who seeks his strength in flesh, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a barren bush in the desert that enjoys no change of season but stands in a lava waste, a salt and empty earth. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose hope is the Lord. He is like a tree planted beside the waters that stretches out its roots to the stream. It fears not the heat when it comes. Its leaves stay green. In the year of drought, it shows no distress, but still bears fruit. The choice described is pretty straightforward. It follows the pattern of a wisdom poem, offering a simple either-or choice. On the one hand, you can trust in the physical and the intellectual resources of humanity. You then are placing your faith 
in the trustworthiness of humanity. Alternatively, you can trust in the promises made by the God of Israel and your experience of their fulfillment in the past. The imagery used to illustrate the consequences of each choice is vivid and would be very familiar to a desert-dwelling people. When you trust in mere humanity, you experience life as bleak and fruitless. Carefully consider the statement that one would enjoy no change of season. What does this call to mind for you? For me, it says whenever a barren season comes, we can be assured that a season of new life and restored growth will ultimately follow. I spent my childhood in a countryside that went each year from frozen, snow-covered fields to rich, fertile, abundantly productive soil, yielding bountiful fruits and vegetables beyond local needs, and also rich grazing pastures for livestock. The seasonal cycle was dramatic. You couldn't miss it. Now that I live in a desert, the cyclic changes are far more subtle, and some nearby land never does rise to the capacity to produce or easily sustain a human population. Active rivers out here are extremely scarce. Each of them is immediately noticeable in the landscape because of the presence of trees. They line the banks. Even some dry riverbeds support a lining of trees with an underground water flow. Jeremiah's audience would get the message based on their experience with their own homelands. With these two choices coupled with the description of their inevitable consequences, Jeremiah is drawing the distinction between a true Israelite and a false one. It is determined by the choice each makes in where they place their trust, what truly grounds their faith. St. Paul labels this same distinction as the choice between walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit. It is unusual for Jeremiah to offer this two-stanza poem as it's a general overarching principle rather than Jeremiah addressing a specific situation. For this reason, some scholars suggest it might not be his work. However, nothing in the content of the passage contradicts any of Jeremiah's other writings. The responsorial for this Mass is drawn from Psalm number 1. It follows the same pattern of contrasting blessings, those that faithfulness to the covenant with God brings, as compared to disobedience, which brings only curses in its wake. As far as the time frame of authorship, Jeremiah predates the psalmist's work, which is generally understood to be from after the Babylonian exile. It is the same image here to represent the strength of those who honor the covenant, a tree with roots fed by a constant life-giving stream, Starting as always with the refrain, here is the responsorial. Blessed are they who hope in the Lord. Blessed the man who follows not the counsel of the wicked, nor walks in the way of sinners, nor sits in the company of the insolent, but delights in the law of the Lord, 
and meditates on his law day and night. Blessed are they who hope in the Lord. He is like a tree planted near running water that yields its fruit in due season and whose leaves never fade. Whatever he does prospers. Blessed are they who hope in the Lord. Not so the wicked, not so. They are like chaff which the wind drives away. For the Lord watches over the way of the just, but the way of the wicked vanishes. Blessed are they who hope in the Lord. Our second reading continues exactly where we left off last week in chapter 15 of St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In last week's passage, Paul established his apostolic authority to preach the gospel of Christ and enumerated witnesses to the resurrected Christ, Peter, the disciples, five hundred brothers, James, and all the other apostles. He does not mention that all four Gospels include women among the very first to see the risen Christ. Make of that what you will. This week, Paul reiterates for the Corinthian community the most compelling component of having faith in the divinity of Jesus the Christ. It's his resurrection, and that of all those who believe in him. A lot of this letter is devoted to Paul correcting behavior or misunderstanding that was present in the Corinthian community. This passage addresses incorrect teaching some members of the community had been doing concerning resurrection for the followers of Christ. A couple incorrect beliefs had arisen and were being promulgated. First, the belief that Christ alone was raised from the dead and that none would follow him through the grave with a resurrected body. By the way, for those of you who are, like me, hoping resurrection will get rid of imperfections in your own body, take heart. Later, Paul makes it clear that the resurrected body is both unique to each person and unpredictable as to its attributes, that being totally up to God. Looking at my school pictures from the past and looking down at my bathroom scale today, I take great comfort in that fact. Second, there was a belief among some that the resurrected Christ had effected a resurrection of all those who follow him already. That is, a belief that Christians, by virtue of their baptism, were already in a resurrected state. I can't explain that very well because it makes no sense to me. Further, that belief seems to have led to a loosening of adherence to standards of bodily sanctity. Detail aside, it's clear that Paul was working hard to corral some runaway, impromptu, and self-serving alterations to the kerygma, the core gospel message. Here is the day's reading from the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If the dead are not raised, neither has Christ been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, 
Your faith is vain. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are the most pitiable people of all. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul states it plainly. Our faith is utterly groundless if Jesus did not rise from the dead. It's easy enough to find that simple statement convincing. But the logic in the rest of his claim here can be difficult to follow. Part of that might be due to the fact that verses are not included that could be helpful. The lectionary stops at verse 20. So I'll go a little farther, picking up at verse 21 and following. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The resurrection of Christ, his unconditional self-giving, to open up the way toward reunification with the Godhead, in this life and in that which is to come. That is the compelling why for believing in him. So what is the either-or choice here? Paul challenges his readers to choose to trust in the whole gospel or settle for some invented, limited understanding of the implications of the resurrected Christ and give up true hope. This chapter keeps going with further aspects of Christ's resurrection and its implications for us. We'll get another snippet next week. In this day's Gospel, we hear the Lucan story that parallels what in St. Matthew's Gospel is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Here, it is the Sermon on the Plain, that is, on level ground. There is a debate about the relationship between these two stories. Some scholars believe both evangelists recorded the same preaching, the same event. Others believe, due to the differences that exist, that they were entirely separate. In each of the two Gospels, the two similar segments are at the beginning of an extended address that includes a synopsis of much of Jesus' teachings throughout his public ministry. Both of these two opening segments in Luke and in Matthew are beatitude lists. The three most obvious differences are first that Luke has Jesus speak to the crowd on level ground, having just descended a mountain from a night of prayer. Matthew has Jesus going up a mountain to be seated and elevated above the people, either on a mountainside or on a mountain top. The text is ambiguous. Second, Matthew includes nine Beatitudes, while Luke lists just four. Third, 
While Matthew has Jesus speak only of blessings to be gained, Luke includes corresponding woes or curses as counterpoint to each of the Beatitudes. A further point of apparent difference is the audience to whom the Beatitude teaching is directed. In Luke, this portion of the longer teaching is directed specifically to his closer disciples, his newly named twelve apostles, rather than to the crowd as a whole. Matthew is somewhat ambiguous on this point, although one could infer the same presence of a favored disciples-only portion of the longer teaching. The final beatitude in both Gospels concerns being blessed when others denounce one who carries on the teaching of Jesus. This does sound, to me at least, like something Jesus would likely say to his apostles rather than to the crowd at large. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus speaks in third-person voice, that is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke's version is voiced in second-person direct address, as in, blessed are you, or woe to you. Rarely noted, but present in both Luke and Matthew, is a subtle shift in verb tense in the first beatitude. Luke writes, blessed are you who are poor for the kingdom of God is yours. Matthew's Jesus offers the seemingly softer poor in spirit, but still affirms theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is no waiting period. All the other blessings in both versions are future tense. You will be satisfied. You will laugh. They will inherit the land. Also, in the corresponding woe concerning poverty and wealth, the verb tense strengthens its impact. You who are rich, you have received your reward. In other words, what you have and believe belongs to you alone. That is all you're going to get. There is no ambiguity concerning the present claim on God's grace that the poor have. Likewise, there is no ambiguity concerning the fleeting nature of temporal wealth. That can sound rather harsh. It seems a special challenge for prosperous men and women in any economy. Is Jesus condemning accomplishment and praising poverty in and of itself? No. It's about openness to God's love and grace. If all one's bodily and temporal desires are realized, if one has a full belly, a great fortune, laughs without concern for the suffering of others, is willing to isolate and demean others for living a moral life, they have no room for grace. There is little chance of feeling a need for inclusive community, much less any chance of feeling a need for God. On the other hand, poverty, isolation, sorrow, and derision are not of themselves to be praised. They all limit one's struggle to become fully human, fully joined with others and with God. However, 
those who endure such conditions in life have a far greater awareness of their own need for others and the absolute necessity of God's grace. It is their sensitivity to the needs of others and their openness to that grace and to the divine will that brings them the blessings they receive. Uh-oh, there's another homily trying to sneak in and take over this episode. There is one last bit of business to do. So here is Sunday's reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Jesus came down with the twelve and stood on a stretch of level ground with a great crowd of his disciples and a large number of the people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. And raising his eyes toward his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who are now weeping, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and insult you and denounce your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice and leap for joy on that day. Behold, your reward will be great in heaven, for their ancestors treated the prophets in the same way. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are filled now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will grieve and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for their ancestors treated the false prophets in this way. This episode is a bit shorter than usual, so if you had set aside a half hour to listen, you have some free time right now. Say a prayer for somebody. Be an instrument of blessing to others. And in turn, I pray that the blessing of our loving God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, touch your life and remain with you always.